You know, as we are preparing our hearts uh, for Christmas here at Restoration Church, we are looking at a familiar Christmas story, a story that many of us have heard time and time again. Specifically, we're looking at the story of the three wise men and the, the gifts that they brought baby Jesus. And uh, when you think about the wise men, what comes, what's the visual that comes to your mind? You think about the wise men, what's the visual? Oftentimes, it's this nativity scene right here, right? Uh, in the nativity scene, this is what we're familiar with when we think about the wise men. Maybe this is the nativity scene you see at your grandma's house. Maybe it's now at your house, whatever the case may be. No judgment. But in the nativity scene, there's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And of course, they're made out of porcelain because only the, the, the nicest for baby Jesus, right? And in there, you know, there's, there's a couple of animals. You know, there, there's a cow and a sheep. Uh, there's a shepherd usually there. And if you look, there are three wise men with these long flowing robes kneeling down to present their gifts to, to baby Jesus. Listen, if this is your nativity scene, uh, I hate to burst your bubble. I hate to burst your bubble, but the biblical story does not actually tell us that there were three wise men. Nowhere are we told there's three wise men. We're told there's three gifts, but we're never told that there are actually three wise men. There could have been more. There could have been an army of wise men. We don't know. We just know that there were three gifts. Additionally, by the time that the wise men, the magi, by the time they actually would have arrived, by the, actually by the time they saw the star and then left from the east to go and travel a distance to find where the star was, Jesus wouldn't have been a, a baby anymore. He probably would have been like 18 months old, two years old, something like that. And so I want you, as you think about the wise men, I want you to change your visual from this of these wise men bowing down before the baby Jesus. I want you to picture the wise man bowing down before a toddler. Right? Can you picture that? The wise man bowing down with their gifts before a toddler. Listen, how many have ever had a toddler? How many of you have ever been around a toddler? Okay, that is crazy. If you haven't had a toddler... It is very easy for us to judge the parents of toddlers. For example, when you go out to a restaurant, which we can't do that right now, but if you go out to a restaurant or you go to church and there's a parent with, with toddlers in front of you and the toddlers are, are banging on the pew and they're, they're crying, wah, 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 and they're throwing things all around, it's easy for us to judge that parent, right? I'll be honest, I used to judge the parents of toddlers until I had my own, right? And the U.S. government, the U.S. government refuses to negotiate with terrorists. But any parent with a toddler throwing a tantrum knows that doesn't work in real life. And as you as a parent, you have the, the best intentions to be the best kind of parent. As soon as that toddler starts throwing a tantrum, you negotiate and all good parenting goes out the door. What do you want? Here's my phone. Here's my phone. You can watch something on my phone. Here's a candy bar. Here's a can of Mountain Dew. Here's the keys to my car. Just stop crying. Y'all have been there, right? Or is that just me? That is the image I want you to picture with the wise men, with the magi. I say, come to bring these gifts and then kneel down before a toddler. It changes the visual just a little bit. Uh, obviously, in this wise, uh, or in this familiar passage that we're so familiar with the, with the wise men, they came to the house, not a stable. They came to a house uh, to worship 
the, 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 the toddler king, Jesus, and they offered him the gifts, the gifts of gold, the gift of frankincense, and the gift of myrrh. These are gifts that are somewhat unusual in our day and age. I'm still waiting for someone to give us gold. We had five kids. That should be worth something. I'm still waiting for that. These were unusual gifts in our day and age, but in Jesus' day, those gifts were beneficial to the family. As well as each of these gifts, they had a prophetic meaning to the roles that Jesus would fulfill in his lifetime. The gift of gold, which is valuable in a monetary nature, it points to Jesus being the king of kings. We'll look at that next week. We saw last week that as the wise men offered Jesus the gift of frankincense, it points to Jesus being the, our great high priest who, who gave his life as a sacrifice in our place. Yet also the great high priest who sympathizes with us, who understands our experience and what we go through. But today, today we're going to look at the gift of myrrh. The gift of myrrh. I'll tell you, here's a little bit of what I learned about the gift of myrrh or about myrrh as an item this week. Myrrh is actually a resin that is harvested from trees uh, in the arid deserts of the Middle East. You might find these trees in Yemen, uh, Somalia, eastern Ethiopia. Uh, that's where you'll find this, this tree. And what they end up doing is they beat the tree and expose it, and then this resin comes out of the tree, and they collect that resin, and that is myrrh. Myrrh is actually something that's biblical. It is mentioned 17 times in the Bible, 17 different times. Now, myrrh has a number of different uses. Uh, myrrh can be used uh, as a fragrance. It's got a nice smell to it, but it can be used as a fragrance. It can be used as uh, medicine. It can be used as an antiseptic. And so there's all these different purposes. In fact, Jesus on the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, if you remember that story, the, the, the soldiers came and offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain. So myrrh has a number of different purposes. But most common, and when we look at the, the idea of what myrrh is, most commonly in the Bible is used because of its fragrant properties, it's used to embalm the dead. That as somebody was going to die, because dead bodies don't have a nice smell to them, oftentimes they take this embalming fluid with myrrh, and they'd embalm the body with that. And so, as we've been doing is trying to say, oh, if this is what the gift is, how does it uh, foreshadow the roles that Jesus is going to play? And so the gift of myrrh foreshadows the death of Jesus as our suffering servant, as the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the Old Testament prophecy that, that, that Mike read for us this morning. That shows us how myrrh points to Jesus as being our suffering servant who was born to die so that we can live. That myrrh represents how Jesus was born to die for the forgiveness of our sin. Before we look at that, how many of you, how many of you are football fans? I mean, any of you guys football fans enjoy watching the Seahawks particularly and all those other teams as well? Let's just, let's just play a little game. Imagine, imagine if I had the power. Imagine if I had the ability to, to know which teams were going to be in the Super Bowl this year. And not only that, imagine if I had the ability to actually tell you this is what the score is going to be in the Super Bowl. And this is who's going to be the MVP. Imagine if I could predict that so correctly. Like, that would be pretty awesome, right? You guys would want to be friends with me and make some bets on the game because I knew what was going to happen. 
Now let's do this. Let's do this. Imagine, imagine, take this further, 700 years later, 700 years from now, let's imagine the world is still here. Let's imagine uh, that there's no new pandemics controlling our, our, our culture. Let's imagine, let's imagine that football is still a thing 700 years down the road. Now imagine for that Super Bowl, if I could tell you which teams were going to play, if I could tell you what the final score of that game was going to be, if I could tell you who was going to be the, the MVP of that game, man, if I could predict that, man, I'd be, like, I'd be a prophet like no other. Essentially, that is what we find in the book of Isaiah, specifically in chapter 53. Where the prophet Isaiah, he gives this prophecy that is 700 years before Jesus is even born. And, and he prophesies this very detailed account of what Jesus will endure. But before we get to that prophecy, I want to make sure we understand what the problem is. Why does, why does Jesus have to be born to die for us? And Isaiah actually tells us what the problem is. He says in verse 6, verse 6, he says, All we are like sheep and we have gone astray. Now, let me just tell you something. Uh, when Isaiah calls us sheep, that's not a compliment. That is not a compliment. If he, now, if, if he would have called us like a lion, like that'd be a great compliment. If he called us a rhinoceros, if he called us a, 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 a hypergenic labradoodle, like that would be a compliment to us. We can train all sorts of animals, right? Has anybody ever heard anybody actually training a sheep? Like anybody call you up and say, hey, come over to my house and watch my sheep sit. That is a dangerous sentence right there. And I nailed it. Come watch my sheep sit. I know, that's a bad joke. Hashtag that joke. There we go. Sheep. Here's what we know about sheep. Sheep are weak animals. Sheep are defenseless. Sheep don't have really cool fangs. They don't have sharp claws. Uh, they, they can't fly. They can't blend into anything around them. Sheep are weak and defenseless. If a predator comes, they have nothing to protect themselves. Sheep are witless, which means sheep don't actually think for themselves. When one sheep does a dumb thing, the rest of the sheep actually follow. There's a, actually a story out of, uh, that came out of Turkey a number of years ago where there was 1,500 sheep, 1,500 sheep that jumped off the edge of a cliff. One sheep goes, two, three, four, five, ten, 1,500 sheep jump off the clip, cliff. Here's, here's the bad news. The bad news is 400 of those sheep died. That's the bad news. The good news is it was the first 400 because those first 400 became a really big Sheep pillow, fluffy pillow for all the other sheep to land on top of. Okay, that wasn't as funny as I thought it was. I thought it was great. Sheep are witless. They don't think for themselves. They just follow one another. Sheep are also wayward. Sheep are wanderers. If you were a shepherd, you'd look at the sheep and say, where are you going, little sheep? And the sheep says, I'm going over here. I'm looking for happiness over here until I find a cliff. I'm looking for happiness over here until I find a predator. Sheep wander. And so what Isaiah just said is all of us, we are like sheep. We have gone astray, and he's not complimenting ourselves. When he calls us sheep, we don't like to admit it. 
We don't like to admit that we are like sheep, that we are weak. Like sheep, you and I, we are unable to withstand uh, uh, against the, 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 the enemy, Satan. We are weak against sin, which is why oftentimes we find ourselves wrestling with sin. We feel like, well, I can get ahead a little while until it comes and rears its ugly head again. Because we are weak and defenseless against sin and Satan. We are witless. How many of you guys ever had your parents say, if all your friends would jump off a bridge, would you do it too? Now, we may not jump off a bridge, right? But how many of us just begin to follow whatever the culture tells us around us? How many of us feel that pressure to keep up with the Joneses? How many of us feel the pressure to do, because this is what everybody does, the culture has a tremendous influence as us, even as followers of Christ. We're a world where our life begins to look just like the people in the world. Finally, we like sheep, we are wanderers. We are wayward. As we think about looking for meaning in our life, we're looking for purpose, we're looking for, for those sorts of things. We look for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and peace in all these different areas, right? That's where we get into the Christmas season. We think, if I can just buy my family all of the greatest Christmas gifts, man, it'll bring peace to my family. And you get to Christmas and you find it hasn't brought peace, it's just brought debt. And you think, well, if I could just find this relationship or this experience, then I'll be satisfied. Until you find it doesn't fulfill you. It disappoints you. We are all like sheep. We are, we we are weak we are witless, we are wanderers. And Isaiah actually takes it a little bit further in verse 6. He says, we have turned away, every one of us, to our own way. That is the problem. Because we are sheep, we have turned away from the way that God would want us to live, and we've gone on our own way. We've turned away from, from the will and the plan of God to say, I'm smart enough, I can figure it out. I'm good enough. I can figure out where I'm going in life on my own. I don't need that. I don't need help. And by the fact that we have this nature within us, it just reveals how much help we actually need. So we are sheep. That is the problem. We are wayward. We've turned away from God and followed our own path. And here's the solution to that. Here's the solution to going our own way to us being sheep. Verse 6. Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In fact, that is the point of the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. That because we are like sheep, because we've gone astray, God has laid on him, the suffering servant who will be called Jesus, God has laid on him all of our sin. This is the reason why Jesus had to suffer. He had to suffer because of you and I. Because we've turned our back on God. Because we said, God, this is the way you said to live, but I'm going to choose to live this other way instead. Because of us, Jesus had to suffer. And the rest of this chapter, it just is a beautiful description of the suffering that Jesus would endure as he took his sin upon himself, took our sin upon himself. Look at this, verse 3. Verse 3, Isaiah says that he will be despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. See, what's, what's worse is he's not suffering for anything he's done. He's suffering because of us. He's suffering because of the weight of our sin. He says, but we esteemed him not. 
We didn't notice what Jesus has done for us. We've decided to turn and go the other way. And listen to this, verse 4. Listen to this. Listen to who he's talking about. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, Jesus is suffering not because of anything he's done. He's suffering in our place. He's suffering because of our sin, because of our iniquities. And listen to this. He says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that by his wounds we are healed. He's doing all of this to get nothing in it for himself. He's not suffering to, to, to bring peace for himself. He's not suffering so he can be healed. He's doing it for us. He's doing it for us. This is an incredible declaration of the divine love of Jesus that he would suffer in this way in no way to benefit him, but only to benefit us. And see, as Isaiah, as he's prophesying this, this suffering servant, what Jesus is going to endure in our place, this isn't just a theory. This isn't just, well, this might happen 700 years down the road. Listen, if we understand the, the life of Jesus, he was born in the manger, but he didn't stay in that manger. In the story of Jesus, at the end of his life, we know that Jesus suffered in horrendous ways. In fact, here are some of the ways that Jesus suffered towards the end of his life. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is betrayed, or the night that Jesus is betrayed, the night before he's crucified, he is praying in the garden with his disciples. Remember what he prayed? He prayed and said, God, God, would you remove this cup from me? God, if there's any other way, I know what's coming. I know the suffering I'm about to endure. If there's any other way. So overwhelmed was he that he actually swe was sweating blood, drops of blood. The anguish that he knew was coming, the anxiety, the stress of what was coming, he was, he was sweating drops of blood. But ultimately he prayed, okay, God, not my will, but yours be done. Judas, who is one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his closest friends, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. How hard do you think that was? Jesus is arrested. He's falsely accused. And while he's being arrested and falsely accused, remember where all the rest of his friends were? Oh yeah, they deserted him. They left him when they needed him most. In fact, in the story, as as, uh, as Jesus is brought before the religious leaders to be tried. There's Peter in the background, in earshot of Jesus, denying even knowing Jesus three different times. Scripture says that Jesus is sentenced to the death on the, on the cross and crucifixion. He is beaten with whips. He is punched across his face. He's got the crown of thorns pressed down into his head. He stripped naked, publicly exposed. Can you imagine how humiliating that would have been? Could you, could you imagine the shame that he would have faced as he's being beaten like this? He's forced to carry his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when he's there, they take his hands and they nail seven-inch nails into his hands and into his feet. And they 
hang him on the cross, again to be shamefully naked and exposed to all who would walk by. You know what's amazing about this? Is, is as we look at how Jesus suffered, just as Isaiah prophesied, even though he was oppressed, even though he was afflicted, he never raised his voice against those who did this to him. He never condemned those who hung him to the cross. The death on the cross would have been slow and incredibly painful. He would have endured incredible suffering until finally Jesus said, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave his life for our sins. Can you just think about that for a moment? Think about the suffering that Jesus did in our place. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says that Jesus would be buried like a criminal. We would be put in a rich man's grave. You ever wonder how Isaiah knew that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, would offer his grave to the body of Jesus? And that grave would become the most well-known tomb in the entire world? How would Isaiah have known that? But he did. And just as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus is put in that tomb. In fact, Isaiah summarizes what the suffering servant had done in our place in verse 11. Verse 11 says, By the experience of the righteous one, by the experience of the servant of God, many will be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because of that suffering, because of what Jesus did for us, many of us will be counted as righteous before God. Because he bears our iniquities. Jesus, that suffering servant, he suffered for what we deserve. He took our place. It should have been us on that cross. But he said, no, I'll, I'll do it for them. I'll do it for you. In fact, when you visualize those wise men kneeling before that toddler offering the gifts of gold and frankincense and specifically the gift of myrrh. I want you to think about how that myrrh represents this simple truth. It points us to the simple truth that Jesus died so that we can live. Jesus was born to die so that we can live. He was born to die for the forgiveness of our sin. Listen, in light of the magnitude of all that Jesus suffered in our place, Let's just honestly ask this question. In light of what Jesus has done in our place, what should our response be? What should your response be in light of all that Jesus has done for you? See, it's not enough. It's not enough for us just to say, well, I, casually, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church when I have time. I, you know, I, sometimes I read my Bible. I pray over a meal when I'm at a restaurant because people might see me do that. Listen, is that enough? Is that enough after all that Jesus has done to suffer in your place? In fact, Jesus understood Isaiah's prophecy about him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, 
He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He said, I know this is going to come. And following up on that, Jesus said to all who would listen, he said, if anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to be my disciple, this is what you have to do. Notice what he doesn't say, though. He doesn't say, if you want to be my disciple, all you have to do is pray a prayer at the end of church, and then your life is going to be prosperous and blessed for the rest of your life. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, you have to follow me and obey me on the things that you agree with me on, but anything that you disagree with me on, that doesn't really matter. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say to, to trust God with the things that are easy, like our salvation, but not to trust him with the things that are harder, like our health, our marriage, our sexuality. No, that's not what he says. What Jesus says, he says, if anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to be my disciples, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. See, Christianity is not something to make you feel good. It's not something to make you happy. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, said, I don't go to religion to make, my ha to make myself happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that just fine. Now Jesus says, take up your cross and deny yourself. To deny yourself means that you live a life that's not about you. It's not about you. And then he says, to follow me. Which means your faith cannot just be a hobby. Christianity cannot be something that you just add a little bit in to the rest of what you have going on. Christianity is not something you do just to feel good. When we understand what Jesus has done for us, because he has suffered for us, because he suffered for you in your place, shouldn't we give all of ourselves over to him? It almost just seems reasonable when we understand what Jesus has done for us. It seems reasonable for us to follow him, to be obedient to him, to live our life in a way that honors him after what he's done for us. Let me give you a picture. I could probably stand up here for hours to tell you how amazing my wife is. I could. For 20 years, she has loved me in amazing ways, ways that I don't deserve. Have I struggled with my own hurt and pain in my life? She has sat beside me and comforted me and always been there for me. She's never left me. When I've hurt her, she has somehow found the grace to forgive me, to love me in ways that I don't deserve regardless of what I've done to her. Because of how she's loved me, I choose to put her needs above my own. Because of how she's loved me, I would do anything for her. I even started wearing skinny jeans for her. Because of how she loved me. Listen, if we would grasp the fact of what Jesus has suffered for us, how Jesus has suffered for your sin, 
How Jesus has suffered for your lustfulness, your hypocrisy, your greed, your anger, your judgmental spirit, your unforgiveness, your wicked heart. If we would grasp how Jesus has suffered for us, that is by his stripes, by his wounds we are healed. Shouldn't that overwhelm us? Shouldn't that completely overtake our heart? That we want in no other way than to give all of ourselves over to him. I just want to ask you this morning, just between you and God, have you fully given yourself over to him? Have you surrendered your will on your desires to him? Have you surrendered your opinions to him? Have you actually said, okay, God, I will follow you? Is your faith something that you've just tried to add on to whatever it is you're trying to do in your life? Or have you allowed your faith to be the main thing that you are known for? Do you understand the depth of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you? The suffering and the pain that he went through, not for himself, but for you. Because he is our suffering servant. He releases us from the chains of sin. He releases us. So we are a prisoner no more. Our shame was a ransom that Jesus faithfully bore. He canceled our debt and he called us his friend. Listen, that is when our life actually begins. Have you fully surrendered over to God? Is there a part of your life that you're holding on to, unwilling to give to him? Because if we grasp how Jesus has suffered for us, remember this is what he said. If you understand what I've done for you, daily deny yourself follow me. Let me pray.